Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for June 14th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. United Healthcare to begin retrospective reviews of claims for emergency department services. Physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall reports our lead story. The U.S. Department of Justice will intervene in a major whistleblower lawsuit launched by Integra Med Analytics. Famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman has details. And the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, reminds payers and providers that COVID-19 vaccines and testing must be free to patients. Are they listening? Matthew Albright covers that in his legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorneys Nicole Emanuel and David Glazer and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. The CMS Prior Authorization Program for Hospital Outpatient Departments for Additional Services begins July 1st. Those two additional services include cervical fusion with disc removal and implanted spinal neurostimulators. Also from CMS, the first quarter fiscal year 2021 PEPPER report, they're now available for short-term care acute hospitals. And finally, the 2022 ICD-10 PCS procedure codes are now available, and you can read more about these new codes at ICD-10 Monitor. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Now, I'd be in trouble if I didn't point out to Chuck that when he says the PEPPER reports, he's being redundant because the R in PEPPER stands for report. And I know Dr. Ugarde Hopkins is listening for me to say that. There was a couple of controversies this week. We're going to hear about the ED visit policy, and that got a lot of talk on medical Twitter. But the other thing that happened is not going to be reversed. And that's that the Food and Drug Administration approved the marketing of a new drug for Alzheimer's disease that destroys amyloid in the brain. Now, the buildup of amyloid is associated with the development of dementia. So it makes sense that this drug would work. But there's a problem. The trials demonstrated the drug did not produce any significant improvement. The FDA stated that they approved it because the drug has the potential to be effective. Well, another big problem is the cost. It's priced at $56,000 a year per patient. To compound the problem, it's administered intravenously once a month, and that means it's covered under Part B and not Part T, like oral medications. Again, it needs to be administered in a doctor's office or in the hospital. Now, this is really a terrible approval. The FDA approved based on a surrogate marker, and now Medicare is going to be paying billions of dollars on a drug that might not do anything. To show how controversial this approval was, four members of the advisory committee who evaluate drug data for the FDA resigned when they approved this drug. Now, remember, just because a treatment is FDA-approved doesn't mean that any payer, even Medicare, is required to cover it. And as soon as the FDA approved this drug, experts around the country called for CMS to immediately start the national coverage process to decide whether this should be covered. 
And you can bet that as CMS evaluates its options, the drug company is going to be planning their marketing approach and seeing how quickly they can convince doctors to order this medication on every single patient with mild cognitive impairment. Now, why should our listeners care about this? Well, those of you who heard me speak about medical necessity have heard me urge physician advisors and the UR team to take a look at what happens in your infusion center. If CMS or the MACs establish criteria for its use, you'll need to develop a process to ensure that criteria are met. What about the patient who's hospitalized that just happens to have dementia? Will doctors be able to order the drug to be administered while they're in the hospital being treated for heart failure? Keep an eye on this. Now, moving on, since I'm already complaining, you've heard me talk in the past about site-neutral payment policies, where the same service gets paid the same no matter the setting. Of course, surgery centers are all for that. They want to get paid as much as hospitals for surgeries. Well, last week I found some data on Illinois surgery centers. And in the Chicago region, I could only find one surgery center with over 1% Medicaid patients. They want site neutrality. They need to show payer neutrality. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. In RAC news, on June 1st, 2021, Coda acquired HMS for RAC Region 4. So don't be surprised if you see Coda logo on RAC audits where you would have normally seen HMS. This change will have no impact on the day-to-day contract administration and the audit timelines under CMS's guidance. You'll just continue to follow the guidance in the improper payment notification letters for submission of medical documentation and discussion period requests. In March 2021, CMS awarded Performant an eight-and-a-half-year contract to serve as Region 1 RAC. So these are two new players that we have, and the contracts are not short. There really can't be any deviations regardless the name of the RAC auditor because this area is so regulated. Providers always have appeal rights regardless Medicare or Medicaid RAC audits or any other type of audit. Medicaid RAC provider appeals are found in 42 CFR 455.512, whereas Medicare provider redeterminations and the five levels of appeal are found in 42 CFR subpart I. The reason that RAC audits are spoken about so often is that the Code of Federal Regulations applies different rules for RAC audits versus MAC, EPE, or UPIC, or other audits. The biggest difference is that RAC auditors are limited to a three-year look-back period, according to 42 CFR 455.508. Other auditors do not have that same limitation and can look back for longer periods of time. Of course, whenever credible allegations of fraud is involved, that look-back period can be for 10 years. The federal regulations also allow states to request exception from the Medicaid RAC program. CMS mandates every state to participate in the RAC program, but there is a federal reg, 455.516, that allows exceptions. I looked into this, and to my knowledge, no state has requested an exception 
out of the RAC audit program. If anyone else has other information, please let us know. RAC auditors have announced a renewed focus on the two midnight rule for hospitals. Again, yes, 2021, again. This may seem like a rerun. It is. You recall around 2012, RACs began noticing high rates of error with respect to patient status and short-stay Medicare claims submitted for inpatient hospital services. CMS and the RACs indicated that the inpatient care setting was medically unnecessary and the claims should have been billed as outpatient instead. Now remember, for stays under two midnight, inpatient status may be used only in rare and unusual exceptions and may be payable under Medicare Part A on a case-by-case basis. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, and physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Flag Day. It's Monday, June 14th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday Standby. Coding for diagnostic electrophysiology and ablation procedures is a complex task. Now get the information you need to refresh yourself on anatomy, clinical protocols, CPT codes, coding guidelines, and crucial documentation requirements for electrophysiology studies and ablation procedures. Register to attend an upcoming MedLearn webcast, Coding for Diagnostic EP and Ablation Procedures, Solutions for Common Challenges. This exclusive cardiology webcast is this Wednesday, June 16th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. And here's good news. Order this webcast and receive absolutely free the on-demand webcast, Diagnostic EP and Ablation, Keys to Correct Coding and Documentation. Buy one and get one free. Register now to attend Coding for Diagnostic EP and Ablation Procedures, Solutions for Common Challenges, and get the companion webcast free. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as we say every Monday morning, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, Matthew Albright and I are both going to talk about the same topic, but from slightly different perspectives. Because the federal government and health insurers are covering the cost of the COVID vaccine, it's generally inappropriate for healthcare organizations to bill the patient. Matthew's going to discuss the policy, but I want to focus a bit on the mechanics. A client of mine recently called in a panic as they discovered that they had billed a number of patients for vaccinations. Their experience offers some lessons. First, when it comes to big, high-profile billing issues, the types of things that might get you on TV, it can be worth taking the time to issue a broad education to everyone in the billing department. Now, I realize that this is a tough one because there are innumerable billing issues And you can't emphasize every rule because emphasizing everything is emphasizing nothing. But I don't think anyone's terribly surprised that this particular error wound up garnering garnering media coverage. Generally speaking, you're not going to be on TV for billing with the wrong side of service. But making a mistake on a national health priority is just the sort of thing that gets news stories above the fold and teaser stories on television. When that seems like that's the consequence of doing something wrong, it can be worth a department-wide note to make sure everyone knows the rule. Second, put real effort into training everyone who might interact directly with patients on strategies for ensuring that any patient who calls with a question about their bill both 
is and feels listened to. It's somewhat common for anyone, including customer service professionals, to get a bit too committed to defending a position. When the patients first called with questions about the vaccine, they received pushback from the billing office, people asserting, oh, we did this the right way. But the patients were on to something, despite the fact that their concerns were dismissed or minimized. Even when the staff recognized the error, they assumed that the mistake was unique and had just been made on this patient and failed to encourage a broader review of the systems. Since the callers generally had confidence that they were right and that the person they were speaking with was wrong, getting the pushback was extremely inflammatory. It's bad enough to get a bill you know you're not supposed to receive, but then when the person you call argues with you, it's easy to hit the point where you're calling the local TV station, which is exactly what happened here. This brings me to my final point. Whether you're talking to the patient or the local TV station or newspaper, what should you say after you've made a mistake like this? Many lawyers recommend all comments to the media or offering a curt no comment or some kind of other blanket mushy statement. I strongly disagree with that strategy. In a situation where you know that you've made a mistake, an apology is usually a wise strategy. Whether you're dealing with a frustrated patient or a concerned regulator, there's a very real possibility that the person's main goal is to get a sense that you recognize the problem and that you're gonna fix it. While there are certainly some people who will want to exploit the error for economic gain, it's far more common to have someone who just wants to be treated with respect. An apology will often diffuse what is otherwise an explosive situation. Now, I'm not suggesting that talking with the media is risk-free, and you certainly want to avoid a situation where you present something as factual unless you're 100% certain it's correct. you got to take the time to get all of your facts in line. But while Guido's approach may be right in a romantic relationship, I will go down with this shit And I won't put my hands up and surrender There will be no white flag above my I'm in love and always will be. When interacting with patients and regulators, you don't want to go down with the ship. If you truly screwed up, it's often better to put up your hands and surrender. So Flag Day is a good day to say that sometimes it's best to wave the white flag. Happy Flag Day, Chuck, and back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The U.S. Department of Justice says it will intervene in a major whistleblower lawsuit launched by Integra Med Analytics. Here now with the details is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. Moore's Law, the concept that the cost of storing data halves about every two years, is proving to be true. With data storage and data processing costs plummeting year over year, massive data analyses are within reach for more and more entities, including a new breed of whistleblower, those who analyze data to suss out suspected patterns of fraud. A company that has been a pioneer in the field of data whistleblowing is Integra Med Analytics, whom we've covered previously on Monitor Monday. 
Integra is a company that purports to apply statistical analyses of data sets to detect fraud and then files cases under the False Claims Act, a law that allows private party whistleblowers to file a case on the government's behalf alleging that the government is being defrauded and then receive 15 to 30 percent of any eventual recovery. While most prototypical False Claims Act whistleblowers are corporate insiders who witness their company or a company they work with committing fraud against the government, Integra is different. Instead of being a first-hand witness to frauds, Integra's core business model is to identify frauds through mathematical modeling and later, where possible, to fill in the gaps with information gleaned from the work of private investigators. Although Integra's efforts at rooting out fraud through data analysis have been unsuccessful thus far, a recent decision by the Department of Justice to join one of their whistleblower cases may prove to be a watershed moment for both Integra and other whistleblowers hoping to rely on data analyses to protect, to detect, and prove fraud. Before turning to the New York whistleblower case in which Integra successfully persuaded the government to join, let us first revisit the three earlier healthcare fraud cases Integra filed under the False Claims Act that were unsuccessful. In these cases, Integra accused hospital chains in California, Texas, and North Carolina of defrauding the Medicare program by overcharging for certain hospital visits. Using its data analytics specialty, Integra analyzed publicly available hospital discharge data for the three hospital chains and identified abnormally high rates of comorbidity diagnoses being applied to its DRGs. Because Medicare pays hospitals based on which DRGs they either treated in the case of an illness or performed in the case of a surgery and increases the amount it will reimburse for a patient with comorbidities, Integra alleged that the hospital chains at issue improperly overcharged Medicare by applying comorbidity diagnoses to its patients' DRGs in rates that far exceeded the prevalence of such conditions. The courts ruled against Integra on defendants' motions to dismiss in the North Carolina and Texas cases, with the Texas ruling later being affirmed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Although Integra successfully survived defendants' motions to dismiss in its California case, the result was later overturned by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, ending that case. These dismissals were primarily based on two arguments. One, that Integra could not provide enough detail about the specifics of the fraud, or two, that the fraud was uncovered from publicly available documents and therefore barred by the False Claims Act's public disclosure bar, which states that a whistleblower lawsuit cannot be based on information that is broadly publicly available and that takes no specialized expertise to interpret. It is worth noting that the government did not join any of Integra's three unsuccessful whistleblower lawsuits alleging DRG fraud. Fortunately for Integra, its luck with government intervention decisions changed last week when the Department of Justice intervened in the company's whistleblower case against a group of New York nursing homes alleging improper inflation of rugs, the system Medicare uses to reimburse nursing homes. Rugs measure factors like how many mixed minutes of nursing and therapy services a patient is expected to need to determine the complexity of a patient's case, with patients needing more or more complex care generally drawing higher Medicare reimbursement amounts than patients who require less care. By performing statistic statistical analyses of the claims data for the New York nursing home chains, Integra found that ultra-high, the most severe and expensive rugs, were through the roof at several facilities. 
Integra also ran several statistical models to control for other innocent explanations for these anomalous rates, and finding none, concluded that they were likely the result of fraud and filed this whistleblower case in 2017. Integra's whistleblower complaint is a detailed breakdown of the statistical methods the company used and why innocent explanations cannot account for the grossly inflated rates. For several of the problematic trends described in the complaint, Integra determined they had the alleged probability of less than one in a hundred million of occurring. Earlier this month, after a three-year investigation, DOJ joined Integra's whistleblower case and filed its own complaint. Unlike Integra's complaint, the government's complaint in intervention did not provide an in-depth tour of statistical methods. Instead, it laid out the fruits of the government's lengthy investigation, providing detailed allegations of the defendant's knowledge of the fraud. This case provides a perfect example of the type of public-private partnership envisioned by the False Claims Act at work and of the benefit a data-driven whistleblower can bring to the government. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon. And be sure to read Mary Inman's report on this major story in Thursday's Rack Monitor. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Today, Chuck, it's all about vaccinations. As David Glazer noted earlier in this program, the CARES Act, passed last spring, prohibits providers from charging patients for COVID vaccinations. And the CDC doubles down by requiring providers to sign an agreement that they won't do so. Commercial insurance and government plans are required to pay for any fees to providers for administering the shots. And the government has set up a fund through HRSA where providers can get reimbursed for uninsured patients. In short, under a number of laws and programs, individuals should not be paying anything to get vaccinated. However, a recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that a third of unvaccinated Americans were unsure if their insurance covered the vaccine, leading HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra to write a letter to both providers and payers reminding them that patients should not be charged. Apparently, however, David's client that billed patients for vaccination was an outlier. According to the New York Times, it's not clear that any substantial number of patients have actually been charged and then subsequently paid for a vaccination. But Becerra and others are worried about the perception of possible costs, which may be one factor that keeps individuals from getting the vaccine. According to researchers quoted in the New York Times, this perception reflects a general distrust in the health system based on experience with unexpected medical bills. On a related note, for one group of Americans, the vaccine is quickly becoming a requirement for employment. Hospital systems across the country, including New York Presbyterian and New Jersey's RWJ Barnabas, are requiring their employees to become vaccinated before September or to find another job. Houston Methodist was one of the first hospitals to require employees to be vaccinated. A group of that hospital's employees filed suit last month against the requirement, citing the fact that the FDA has approved the vaccines for emergency use, but the vaccines had not been fully approved. 
However, over this past weekend, a federal judge dismissed the lawsuit, saying that the hospital's decision to mandate vaccinations for its employees was consistent with public policy. As health systems move towards requiring employees to be vaccinated, hospitals must also implement the long-awaited COVID safety standards released on Friday by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The standards, which only apply to hospitals, nursing homes, and other healthcare workplaces, now mandate many of the safety precautions that have been in place now for over a year, including the use of personal protective equipment, social distancing and masking, ventilation requirements, and daily employee health screenings. The difference now, however, is that hospitals are now required to implement these protections. So while the new OSHA rules do not apply to workplaces other than healthcare, OSHA did update its guidance for other workplaces. And that guidance reflects the CDC's most recent recommendations for vaccinated individuals. In workplaces other than healthcare, OSHA suggests, employers no longer need to take steps to protect vaccinated employees. Vaccinated employees no longer need to wear masks or practice social distancing, but unvaccinated and high-risk employees must continue to do so. This poses something of a problem because neither OSHA nor the CDC have given guidance about workplaces where the employer does not know which employees have been vaccinated or not. And to date, only a small percentage of employers track which of their employees have been vaccinated. So how should employers in those situations apply protective policies in a mixed vaccinated workforce? Chuck, it will be interesting to see whether this new OSHA guidance will push more employers to ask their employees whether they've been vaccinated or, like Houston Methodist and other hospitals, make vaccination a requirement of employment. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next, the big news is generating buzz and pushback. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. From outpatient and inpatient coders to billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place satisfying all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in the centralized hub would be accessible from any location, at any time, with any device, for one affordable price. Well, there is such a place. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever and wherever on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. At the top of the broadcast, we reported that United Healthcare will begin retrospective reviews of claims for emergency department services. Physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall is here now to report our lead story. And Dr. Hall, the story is generating a lot of buzz and pushback. What do you think about that? Well, I think it deserves a lot of buzz and even more pushback. But today I find myself in a bit of an unusual situation. As we know, on June 7th, United Healthcare announced that it planned to initiate reviews of ED claims. The notice indicated that it would deny these claims if the patient visit was not an emergency. In this case, UHC joins Anthem and Amerigroup in retrospective denial of ED claims. 
UHC's announcement stated, quote, claims determined to be non-emergent will be subject to no coverage or limited coverage in accordance with the member's certificate of coverage, end quote. The statement refers to this as enhanced capability that will apply to fully, fully insured commercial claims for ED facilities beginning July 1. UHC stated that providers could submit an attestation if a visit was determined to be non-emergent. Uh, but so far, the UHC website has nothing about the attestation or what it should look like. So that's what I would planned to talk about. But the backlash against UHC was swift and fairly severe. The American Hospital Association responded the day after UHC's policy was published. The AHA's response pointedly stated, and I'm going to quote, UHC acknowledges that this policy change is financially motivated and suggests that the savings associated with it will accrue to consumers, end quote. But the AHA continues with, we question whether this is true. I agree with the AHA. On June 10th, UHC announced that implementation of the policy would be delayed until at least the end of the current pandemic. As I noted last month, federal statutes defining an emergency medical condition are at the heart of these crude attempts to boost profit and limit access to care. But these statutes are old. They were designed to prevent hospitals from turning away patients and prevent insurers from requiring pre-authorizations for emergency care. The statutes lack the subtlety to address the realities of scheduling urgent patient care now. In the past, patients could get an appointment on short notice and physicians had more time. The ED was reserved for severe acute conditions and a few chronic repeat customers. Nowadays, primary and urgent care practices may send a patient to the ED if there's anything complicated about that patient or the patient requires time beyond the allocated slot. Listeners have seen patients in their EDs sent from nursing homes, dialysis centers, and offices with a note that just says, patient has anemia, please admit and evaluate. And you can insert any diagnosis you wish. But shouldn't a prudent layperson believe that if a skilled provider refers them to the ED, they have an emergency? The 11th Circuit's decision in American College of, of American College of Emergency Physicians versus Anthem may limit the payer's ability to implement such restrictive policies. But the AHA is probably correct. Policyholders will likely accrue little, if any, benefit. Notifying a provider and offering an attestation rather than issuing a denial with appeal rights adds a new administrative burden. It's a distinction without a difference. I'll refer listeners to my report from last month regarding the 11th Circuit decision for additional guidance, but if you receive one of these denials, appeal every single one regardless of the payer. Note, in your medical record and in your appeal, if the encounter was a referral to your ED by an in-network physician, all of us are probably going to litigate these claims eventually. So hang in there and wait for the next chapter. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was a physician and attorney, Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is the founder of the Aegeus Group. Thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ron Hurst, Mary Inman, and Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story. And remember, when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday. Thanks for starting your Monday with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.